And welcome back to another episode of Pour Me Another, uh, a podcast brought to you by a guy in a closet in the mountains of Virginia. Uh, this is your host, John, and today I am here in the White Trash uh, <laughs> recording studio with retired Army Sergeant Major Mark Thornton, and I'm doing my first veteran interview. Mark, go ahead and say hi to everybody. It's good to talk with you again, John, as always. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad that you're here. I uh, When I thought of who who would I have as my first military veteran for the podcast, I, I thought Mark would be perfect because you've got, you got so many stories and you've got, you've got that, that, that military persona. That's, that's, it's perfect. I was like, this is, this is the man that I need to, I want the, the real McCoy, the real soldier type to come in here and, and talk to me. So, um, so thank you for coming. And, You're very uh, welcome. yeah. So uh, the name of the show is Pour Me Another, and Mark, tell everybody what we're sipping on right now. Okay, uh, a teammate of mine actually gifted me a bottle of Dalmore Highland Scotch. I'm a single malt fan, partly by ethnicity, partly because of taste buds. Um, definitely Highland Speyside Islay. I like the the more flavorful scotches, I guess is the best way to put it. Okay. And he knew that, and I had never tried Dalmore. He found it, I believe it was at the Virginia ABC by Short Pump. He lives up outside of Richmond. So he's got access to a fairly good-sized inventory up there. They have a big store. In Portland, Virginia? Uh, Richmond, outside of Richmond. Outside of Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. And that, that I think, kind of gives him uh, a lot more to investigate he's not a big scotch drinker originally i've kind of dragged him into it and so the the nice part was him having that bottle last time i went up to visit with him we spent a weekend my wife and i go up to visit with them whenever we can so do you stay in touch with a lot of the guys you served with there are those that i became friends with after we were assigned together i've stayed in touch with um as is the case, you don't always establish long-term friendships with everybody you meet. Right. Otherwise, you'd run out of time. Yeah, I'm definitely familiar with that myself. Um, so it has been part of the journey, um, learning who to spend time with, especially in terms of uh, the people that need the most support. I think really has driven a lot of my choices I see. on who I've stayed in touch with. People you wanted to be there for. Yeah. So, well, let's start with, what do you do for a living right now? I am a part-time bike mechanic um, slash salesperson with Foothill Cycling down in Mount Airy. Okay. Uh, we were running a shop in Galax downtown proper called Blue Ridge Bike Shop. Yeah, I remember seeing Um that. And... Basically, what happened was we were the Trek dealer in Virginia. The shop in Mount Airy was the Trek dealer in North Carolina. The previous owner, Richard Roden, great guy, uh, knew Corbett Bourne, who owned Blue Ridge. Uh, they've known each other about a decade, um, ridden together, good friends. Um, Richard's a little older, about 15, 17 years older than me. I'm 55. Gotcha. Um, Basically hit the point where he wanted to retire. He and his wife were looking at spending more time with grandkids and kind of enjoying however much time they've got left. And he contacted Corbett and sold him the shop. Hmm. So that's how all of that came to pass. Um, 
the thing we learned very quickly was Foothills is perfectly located right off the Greenway in Mount Airy. Really? We get walk-in customers every day of the week that we're open. And that's a huge difference from being on South Main Street in Galax. Yeah. We're not in the right spot. So we've shuttered Blue Ridge. He still owns it. The name still exists. But the shop is closed for the time being until we find the right place. So are they going to reopen in Galax? That is the intent. Okay. Closer to the New River Trail. Yeah. And definitely where we're going to get much better presence. Mm Mm-hmm. And the capability for folks to literally walk into the shop okay, uh, to support that. Gotcha. You really have to be in the right place. Now, are you are you from this area originally? No. I was a Navy brat. Okay. Born in Hawaii. Born in Hawaii. Dad is a Vietnam vet. Gotcha. Um, unfortunately, he passed when I was four. I was already hearing that. Uh, it's, it's life. Ain't right. Ain't fair. Ain't changing. Was he in Vietnam when that happened? Was it- no. Actually, he had come back, was getting ready to deploy again. And during what was called soldier readiness processing at that point, medical, his blood work came back funky. He had acute lymphocytic leukemia. Oh, wow. And six months later, he passed. What, what did he do in Vietnam? He was a CB. So okay. he was part of the folks putting in the airstrips and setting up the um, Mike Force patrol bases. So... Ironically, he was in the thick of it in Vietnam, and I wound up volunteering and being in the thick of it. And pick your hot spot. Really? Okay. So yeah, let's um let's uh let's get cracking on those questions. Sure. Um, and so uh, we've got your name, place of origin, and so I guys I created a uh just like a generic list of questions to ask my veterans when they come in here, and I'll I'll try to stick to that that uh, that sort of script along the way. Um, but, uh, we, we'll start with, uh, we'll start with that. So the, the first question is, when did you enlist? I went and talked to the recruiters in the fall of 83. Um, I actually enlisted in 84 because there was a delay in being able to get into the program that I was eligible for. And that was the language of choice, uh, enlistment option. And you wanted, so, so what you were trying to do, military intelligence, and there was a language that you wanted to learn as opposed to another? Yes. Okay. What was the language? Russian? Yep. I knew it. Yeah. Cold War, right? <laughs> of you course. Know, you know, it was, it says what? 35 whiskey is the MOS. Um, now. Now. And that was the MOS that I picked initially myself. And I wanted to learn Russian. <laughs> I swear to God, I, that's what I picked. I, I got a 96 on the ASVAB. And then um, what happened was, uh, I had delinquent college debt, and so they wouldn't give me clearance. a clearance. Yeah, it's exactly right. They wouldn't give me a clearance, and so I. Uh, yep. They said, "Well, you know, if you still want to join right now, you can either get that cleared up, or you can pick from a critical MOS." And so I took a critical MOS. I ended up in eighty-eight, Mike, which I don't regret. It was worth, but I can I can totally identify with that. So why why Russian though? Why did you want to do that? <sighs> It's going to sound a little crazy, but coming out of high school, I was very science-focused. Okay. And at that time, there were actually some really good opportunities within the scientific community in certain fields to work with Russians, oceanographics being one of them. And I really found that to be fascinating to study. Absolutely. That, That was something I focused on coming out of high school. Um. 
I was lucky enough, my mom sent me to a private school. Back in the late 70s where I grew up, if you went to the public school, you were either a jock or a druggie. Okay. Mom figured the best way to beat around that and not even make it an issue was to just send me to a Catholic high school. Okay. Irish Christian Brothers up in Rhode Island. Okay. They have schools in Boston, uh, Lower Manhattan, New York, New Jersey. Um, actually, a really, really good order. You know, all things aside about the Catholic Church and the problems they're facing right now. Yeah. Um, they were the exception. They're really they good. Were, yeah. They're now the Christian Brothers. Um, wound up being a hell of an education and absolutely the right thing for my mom to do, even though it pissed me off as a kid. You know, right. I, I lost all my friends. They all went to North Kingstown High, where I grew up in North Kingstown, Rhode Island. I went to Bishop Hendrickon up in Warwick, okay. which was a, a good 30-minute drive uh, on a good day. Rhode Island's small. Yeah, no, I've been. But you got an ass load of people living there. Yeah, it's dense. So it's, I don't care where you're going. It's going to take you a while to get there. Okay. So you, you grew up in the North. Yeah. And then. 15 years, literally. Okay. And so then you, you decided to enlist in 83. Was that fresh out of high school or? No. I graduated in 82 and went to Syracuse pre-med. Oh, okay. College didn't, uh, didn't uh, do it for you, huh? Yes and no. I had a similar experience. I, the things I wanted to study. Absolutely loved the the third year medical genetics course that I took. Loved it. The third year <laughs> calculus course that I oh, took. Yeah, fuck that. Freaking hated it. Yeah, yeah. Who needs to know the area under a parabola? Yeah. Well, maybe an engineer <laughs> if you're an engineering student. That's so funny. Your that's your college experience kind of parallels mine because I went to a private school in New Hampshire for a while. And I didn't do too hot, but that's because I was complete. I was just, I was not a good student. I was a schmuck. Which yeah. school? Uh, Daniel Webster College in Nashua, New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah, I actually know about it. I went, I was assigned at Devon's. Okay. Where's Devon's? I don't know Devon. Right below Nashua. Is it? Okay. Literally. Did not know that. 10th group. Oh, 10th group. That's right. You were in the team. That's teams. where I started. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So back to the enlistment thing. You did end up military intelligence. Yes. Okay. Short answer. Okay, you can't. Can, you, I'm assuming there are things that you're not allowed to tell me, right? If 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 that was no, 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 no. It just I I did not have a standard career. Okay. Even though I started intelligence. All right. Eleven Bravo became my secondary. Right. I actually sure. went through Ranger School, Jumpmaster School, Scout Swimmer. You got to see where that's all you going. Gung ho, yeah. They, yeah. You so, you you belonged in a group. And that kind of set the tone for the rest of my career. I never fit in, my opinion, with the MI community in any substantial way. I was always the outsider because I didn't know how to relate to somebody that wanted to sit down and play D&D for 15 hours. Okay, so <laughs> so let me get this straight. The MI kids are, are mostly dweebs, nerds. Short answer, yeah. <laughs> okay. Don't get me wrong. We need them. And well, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. But your drive was more towards the operational stuff. Uh, I'm still a shooter. Yeah, I mean, I, I teach my neighbors marksmanship. I'm fucking standing. That's yeah. great. Kind of became a lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, and that's 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 what I understand about the special operations community is is and really most guys I've known that are combat arms 
it's not something they let go of. They kind of keep a you lot of that. Yeah. It's, it's part of who you are. Right. Just like being a soldier in general becomes part of who you are. Exactly. I spent a year with the cavalry and two years with the infantry. And I was supremely envious of those combat arms guys. Did you get your spurs? I did not. I, you know what happened? That's a funny story. I, so for those of you guys listening, I didn't um, either. Yeah. yeah. We we're, we're going to, we're going to hit on some, some military, you're going to hear some military terminology and I'll try and clarify. He said 11 Bravo earlier. That's an MOS for army infantry, but uh, spur ride. So the, the Cav scouts have this tradition called a spur ride. And it's basically where they torture you for 24 hours or 48 hours or something. And then at, when you're done, you get your spurs and a Stetson, which is a cavalry hat. And it's really cool. And when I was attached to the cavalry unit in Korea, I was in Korea when I was attached to the cav. They had a spur ride. and but they, ID. they did the fucking, yeah, that's right, two ID, baby. I got the, I got the Indian head on my keychain down there. But uh, um, they, uh, they, they were, we were in the field when they did their spur ride, the one, the one year that I was there. And uh, I was... I was, I was, I really wanted to do the spur ride because I was, I was a PT stud back then. I was in real good shape and I was, I was kind of gung ho about the army. And, um, I went to do the spur ride and I got, we were in this, there's this place in Korea called, uh, KTC, Korea Training Center, Rodriguez Live Fire Complex. And they line up all these military vehicles and they shoot at the side of the mountain. Well, I, my job as an 88 Mike was we were distribution platoons. So we delivered all the ammo and rich, you know, Fuel. took back. Yeah, well, we didn't do fuel. Oh, that was for the fuelers. Only we, the fuelers. We had okay. the whole. We had a whole sec, uh, separate section. Distro was just for beans and bullets, and we delivered ammunition for fucking everybody. We had you know tank rounds and Apache Hellfire missiles and small arms. Yeah, yeah, everything. Five, five, six, nine mil, all of that stuff. Frag. Uh, yeah, we we yeah we handed out lots of grenades, and um, you know we we the forty mic mic grenades and all that stuff. We delivered. The 120 mic mic mortars to the, uh, they had that 113 track with the 120 millimeter mortar yeah, tube on the back. back. The fucking thing was, they let me hang they were around. Accurate as hell. Yeah, oh yeah, and they're loud. They, I was shocked. I thought a mortar tube that, would just that be like Hollywood thing. Yeah, no, no. it's bullshit. I, th- I yeah, because that's what I, I, yeah, exactly. Because of the fucking movies, I expected this thing to be like doop doop. And no, it was a fucking, it was a pow, dude. It was a, it was an artillery round going off. Like blow um, your eardrums. Yeah, it was crazy, but. uh the one day that they did the spur ride, I was, I was tasked out. I got like, my NCO came to me and was like, you got a mission. I was like, well, I want to do a spur ride. And they're like, fuck you. You're on mission. So, you know, needs of the army. Always I, takes I, priority. I Absolutely. So yeah, I missed out on that. But so back to you, you, um, you enlisted as military intelligence and then you went through all these schools. And so let me ask you this. Uh, I think I, one of my questions is about this. I wanted to ask, why did you join the army before we get any deeper into the career itself? Okay was not happy with my performance in college. I actually had a, a full ride going to Syracuse. Um, Army ROTC. Okay. Pre-med was the program that they had me in. So the Army's take was I needed to be a doc. Hated what I saw within the academic community, mm-hmm. um, especially the post-grad students, because, of course, you do your undergrad, you're, it's just a bachelor's of science in bio. Okay. Then you do your postgrad for the medical side. Um, I watched third-year postgrad medical students sabotage other students' cadavers to try to get a better score. Man, fuck that. So pretty quickly, I got very turned off by the whole program. Yeah, that's um, janky. And again, back to the whole calculus fiasco. The, the, the To be honest, the instructor gave me a D so I wouldn't have to retake the course. So he wouldn't have to see me again. 
but then you turn around, you know, my, my medical courses that I was taking, I had, I was the only freshman in the class, had an A. <laughs> my physiology classes, my, you know, everything else I yeah. was doing. The stuff that you if really I was, liked. Yeah, if I enjoyed it, I did well. If right. I didn't, I freaking punted on it. And you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You've got to be at least good enough to pass the damn other courses. Right. If you want to get a degree. Right, absolutely. So um, instead, I come out, worked for a year, 83. And that was the last time the economy sucked. You know, the recession. Right. During the early part of Reagan's tenure. Right. It was rough. Um, could not make ends meet. And my mom, out of the blue, goes, why don't you talk to the recruiters? In hindsight, I should have started there. But I didn't know that until I went through everything else. Yeah, sure. It was just a learning experience. Exactly. Put you where you belong. Right. So, Finding the right niche. That's exactly right. And why was the Army the right niche? Growing up, Boy Scouts, hiking the Appalachian Trail, shooting archery and rifle. I did CMP as a kid, civilian marksmanship program. Um, I learned to shoot at a very young age, learned to respect weapons at a very young age. Um, So when the time came to look at services, there was no doubt in my mind. It was either the Marine Corps or the Army. What happened was, when I went to talk to the Marine Corps recruiters, Corps knows what language we want you to speak. And the Army was like, what would you like to take? So I went with the Army. That is a that is a succinct description of the difference between the Army and the Marine Corps. Is that the Marine Corps is extremely regimented and and extremely disciplined and 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 very set. And the Army is more fluid. They kinda that's what they taught us when I was going through basic training. Yep. Was they wanted us to be soldiers that could think and, and work things out for ourselves and, and the Corps wanted you to follow orders. Yeah, yeah, to a letter. Well, that's because the Corps I mean, when we're talking about the guys who hit the beach head first and who have to rush into combat and, and like not I think most of the time the Marine Corps' job is to assault. And when you have guys that need to assault, they need to just act and follow yeah, orders. React, right. not think. Yeah, right, exactly. Just do. And whereas the army, they do invade and they do assault in a lot of ways, but usually it's a lot less. I don't know. I just, I felt like between the two branches, we were a lot more. You've got to be able to adapt. I think within the army a lot more quickly because you're less likely to get specific details on how to do the job. Right. They're going to leave it to your discretion to meet the end state the commander describes. Okay. Gotcha. Whereas the Corps is going to tell you exactly what they expect, period. Right, exactly. End of discussion. This is the Go plan. execute. Right. In the Army, it's, here's our beginning point. Here's what we would like to accomplish. Yeah, we're a little fuzzy on the middle. Yeah, in the middle, it kind of gets crazy. That's probably, they probably learned that from, from generations of, of fighting wars and realizing that plans usually go to shit halfway through everything. Or even Just 10 minutes in. Put it in perspective, okay? Yeah. 30 years in the Army. Right. 20 of that spec ops. One mission went according to plan. God damn. One. <laughs> yeah. That's so, yeah. being able to think on your feet. Yeah. You get real good at that. Yeah. I would imagine so, especially with a career like that. That's a long time. 30 years in the service. So um let's see what's next. Uh tell me a little bit about basic training, BCT. Definitely a different era um as far as recruits 
Um, we were the, not the last, but close to the end of the break you all down completely to start you over as a unit, build you back up. So tear down the individual, create a unit, and build the unit. So that mentality of DI is that absolutely you could not do a single fucking thing right. I don't care if you did it right. Not everybody did it right, therefore you all failed. You were shit. That that was the way, that was the mantra, that was the focus. And I kind of have to at least nod to the efficiency of that setup. Because even though it, it, it fucked with me big time, mentally. I hated the start of basic because of that, because I was so focused on, okay, guys, they laid it out for us. This is all we have to do. And then I'd watch somebody fuck it up, and then we're all wrong. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. I wasn't wrong. That's a bitch. He's wrong. You're wrong. You're all wrong. Beat your face. Beat your your face. (laughs) That is, so no mass punishment became a mantra in the Army when I was in. Because it, it turns out that psychologically, it's an extremely ineffective way of training troops. And it, it, it damages the esprit de corps, according to some of the DSs that I had back in the day. Yeah. But, uh, so it, it, it's, they, I, it was my understanding back in that time, um, it was a lot more di- tougher on the soldier. The, the thing to keep in mind is that 84 time frame, I, July of 84 is when I actually arrived at, at reception station. Gotcha. Um, you are four years post-Vietnam training. Wow. So all of the new focus programs, all of the best knowledge we had about how to train soldiers was what came out of the early 70s Vietnam-era General Creighton Ab- Abrams, um, the My Lai Massacre fallout. Right. How do you teach ethics? Right. How do you teach morality? Um, how do you make sure that people understand duty on our country is not the only way to do this? We want you to be able to look at what you're being ordered to do and make a morality judgment decision on whether it's the right thing to do and have the courage when somebody gives you an illegal order to say, no, yeah. I was part of that initial, if it's wrong, then you need to sound off that it's wrong. Right. You need to tell the command, no, you can't do that. That's illegal. So that was a whole new ball game. Yeah. At that point. That is that is that that remained prevalent in my service too. Was trying to pound into us that you have to follow lawful orders, but if a right. lawful order, if it's an unlawful order, you have a duty to say no. You have a duty to raise the red flag there. It's really interesting. So how how long was I've been told that back in, in the 80s during basic training, you could like smoke cigarettes and go out and drink on the weekend. Is that something that they did for you guys or was it different? My company, Alpha 23, at, good Lord, Lost in the Woods, Leonard Wood. Okay, I was there too. I had to think by the nickname. Yeah. So I was Alpha 23 Black Sheep when I went through. I'm not sure what happened right at the beginning. Somebody screwed up so well so spectacularly Mm -hmm. that we were not allowed to drink. Okay. But during breaks, we had smoke breaks. I happened to dip at the time. Okay. Um, Copenhagen was my choice. And so on, whenever they said smoke break, ooh, the tobacco came out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that, I think that is a universal experience of being a soldier is that everybody smokes or dips because that's a way to get a break. 
but not during my basic training. We weren't allowed to do any of that stuff. We were on absolute lockdown. No oh, nicotine of any kind. Yeah, we were. Oh, basic man. training for me was 10 weeks, all male. We had one female drill sergeant. They were integrating female, um, uh, female drill sergeants into, and I was at an infantry. They called it infantry. It was at Fort Knox, Kentucky. The real infantry school was down in uh, Fort Benning, but it was uh, all male, no alcohol, no tobacco. You were always on post. You were always in the unit. You, you never left. You got one phone call at the beginning and then one near the end. You could get letters. You got letters. But we were on, it was like, it was indoctrination. Like we were, it was almost like a prison sentence, but they were controlled you know, environment. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. That's in a nutshell. That's yeah. people don't understand that the, the training focus is to remove all distractions. Right. That's what it means. You become a soldier. It's yeah. that up. I, I, it's, it's hard for me to accurately explain it to a person that's never been in the military. Because, or, or, or even maybe just be a soldier or one of the, one of the more intense branches like army and Marine Corps is that you go through and when you start, you're this turd of yourself. You're this person, this wad, this thing. And then on the other side, you really do change into something completely new and it doesn't stick with everybody. You know what I mean? Like not everybody's a really soldier person when they come out the other side of basic training. I had a lot of turds that graduated basic because we were in the middle of a surge. We were trying to get as many soldiers as we could in. But for me, that that transition of going from, you know, John Lale, the 21-year-old turd from Virginia, to specialist John Lale, United States Army, those, or well, at the time it was just PV2, John, I keep saying my last name, I said I wasn't going to do that, but fuck it, PV2, (laughs) (laughs) fuck, it's hard not to, PV2, John Lale, United States Army, was the most transformative experience in my entire life. Nothing will ever compare to that. Mine as well. I mean, that, that to understand accurately the kind of impact that experience has on you, it is a life-changing event. Absolutely. Period. Absolutely. It really is. And I, I, I remember being in basic was like, I remember I had this moment that, that I'll never forget where I realized like, I'm done with this fucking basic training thing. Can we move on now? I was, I was in, I was in the DFAC, the dining facility, chow hall. And, uh, I had finished my meal and we were on like week eight, week, week seven and a half or something. We were nearing the end of basic training. The last month. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. And, uh, I, uh, I had a tray and in the defect that we had, there was this huge window, big windows, um, as you were in line to go to where you put your trays back. And I remember I was, we were held up for a second and I looked up and I looked out the window and it was like a beautiful summer day in Kentucky. And the, the sky was clear and I could see straight up to a fucking commercial airliner it was streaking across the sky. Right. And I'm, I'm standing there in this fucking chow hall with my thing. And I see this commercial airliner. and I look at that thing and I remember acutely the thought that went through my head was right now on that airplane. There's someone they're They're going to, they're going to go home and eat pizza or, or th- there's a dude, he's going to go home and he's going to fucking get laid or, or someone's going to get shit faced or maybe they'll smoke a blunt when they get, it doesn't fucking matter. They're free. They're out there living their life, man. He, that dude's up, he's going to go home and he's going to pet his cat and watch star Wars on us. Meanwhile, I'm here in this fucking miserable rectangle building, eating my shitty food with my shitty Gatorade. I'm fucking done. I want, yeah, it, it really does. Like there does come a point when you're just fucking finished with it. But even then, like toughing through that experience is part of the, the growth, accepting your Absolutely. fate, accepting that you have to wait now. You're, you're, you're stuck. Like this is your life now. That's, 
That's a big part of becoming a soldier. Hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. Yeah, that's that's the name of the game. Okay, so that's basic training. Now, you told us that your your MOS was military intelligence, but you said you had an atypical career, and you ended up working in special operations after you went to a bunch of schools. So give me like a, a timeline, a generic timeline of your military service, like how it worked out. So July of 84, in process. Start basic, graduate September, send me out to language school in Monterey. Uh, in process, first week of October, graduate end of September, a year later uh, from the Russian program. Um, did well enough that they actually invited me to stay for an additional training program. Would have incurred a longer initial um, service requirement had I done that but it would have guaranteed stationing in Germany. Took the test, passed the test. They're all excited. I turned it down. <laughs> I was done with Monterey. Okay. They went nuts. In the meantime, what they failed to recognize was I'd met my wife. Ah, She was two classes behind me in the program, studying Russian. Um, we get married. Three months later, we get pregnant. She was an interrogator. Oh, okay. Already had an assignment lined up as an instructor back at the schoolhouse. She was that good at that that they wanted to bring her back to teach. Okay. Um, meanwhile, I was either going to Germany or points unknown. They didn't realize I was going to volunteer to jump out of planes and, and basically try to get myself put into the either airborne community at a minimum or special ops community, as it turned out, and I went special ops. So the Army at that point in time was not real family-focused. Yeah, they are now, but they weren't then. Yeah, basically my wife's options were do a an assignment separated from me because she was going to Arizona, Fort Huachuca, and I was going to go wherever the Army wanted me to go, and then they would try to get us back together later as part of the Joint Domicile Program. But the Army had the option of assigning us at different locations around the globe because that was their option, Yeah, not, my, not our choice. Right. Um, so my wife opted to use the, uh, what is it, Chapter 5-8 the pregnancy option. Uh, because she was pregnant, she was able to take that option, do the reserves to fill out her requirement for service, which she did. But it kept us together. Yeah, you got to stay together. Yeah. So I went from Monterey to Goodfellow Air Force Base for training, graduated from that. In the middle of that, had managed to get my request in to volunteer for service with 10th Group, and they sent me to Devons. So I arrive... What was that January of eighty six? You're the challenge. That was the month the challenger blew up. I got there just in time for all of that. Wow. So yeah, that's definitely stuck in my memory. Yeah, I bet. Um, but I was at Devon's from eighty six to ninety two early spring, and I had an opportunity to go try out for something else, and wound up getting picked up for that. And that was 12 years of just 
running around the globe, picking up multiple other languages at that point. So I speak Creole, uh, Haitian, Serb. I can get by in Iraqi Arabic, um, Pashtun, which is an Afghan Afghanistan. dialect. Um, basically, wherever there was a hot spot, I got to pick up a language, and then I would go in and do whatever needed to be done to support ops on that side. You were still attached to Special Forces at the time? In Special Forces? Yeah. I was at with with so from that would have been ninety two twelve years so ninety two to like two thousand and four I guess and at that time what was the primary focus of your operations for that kind of a unit was it counterterrorism or just what the fuck ever there was all kinds of things pretty much anything, anything. and everything anything. because I had the language ability right it it really didn't matter what the mission was gotcha it was figure out what do they need what's gonna make whatever mission they were trying to do. Um, that probably made the, the, the most difficult part of it was figuring out how to properly support the given unit. I had the privilege of working with the uh, CAG guys. I had the privilege of working with Dev Group. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, um, that's where the Scout Swimmer thing came in. Right. What, uh, is, what is CAG? Remind me of that real quick. Delta. Oh, Delta. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So you operated with the, the all, support all to the, everybody. Yeah, all the special operation stuff. Yeah, and so if you had a rough estimate, how many countries do you think you've been to? <laughs> <laughs> he laughs. Uh, <laughs> Too goddamn many, boy. Central and South America probably got about seven or eight. Uh, Middle East, North Africa, another seven or eight. Central Europe, pick the country. I mean, I've been from Britain to Italy to Spain to Germany to France. Funny story there. I got dropped accidentally into France. Navigation error on the part of a navigator on the C-130. Oh, wow. It's fun. Yeah, imagine that. Hey, uh, I don't think we're where you think we are. Shut up and jump. Green light. <laughs> Get the fuck out. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, with the exception of the Far East. I never had the privilege of working anywhere in Korea, Japan, um, Malaysia, Philippines. I love Korea. Hawaii. It's a bummer that's all. Yeah. I mean, that just, that's the way it played out. Yeah. Um, and again, it's, it's funny how the choices that you are given during your career can really drive what your experiences get to be. That's absolutely true. And you know, when I was in, um, I wanted to reclass to aviation. I wanted to work on helicopters, and then I wanted to fly helicopters. And I tried, and they didn't give me that choice. My unit was, I had, I was part of my last unit in El Paso. It was a brand new brigade. They had stood up under First Armor, and uh, they just didn't. They, you know, it wasn't. I've noticed that in in organizations like that, the difference between um, irregular organizations in the army versus regular army organizations. Uh, regimentation uniformity is paramount where I come from. And in your type of deal, it was not. And so if I, I always regret that I didn't do something along those lines, get, get into a, a section of the military that was a little more fluid because I am skilled and I am intelligent. I had really high scores. And if someone had recognized that potential, I might have gone farther in the army and lasted longer in the military. But I didn't because I, I, I went to my who's responsible for retention? Is that S3? 
it is a function of the S1. S1 shop. So I, I kept going back to my S1 under, we were 3rd Brigade, BC, we were 3rd BCT, 1st Armored Division. And I would go to S1 and, and say, all right, retention, I want aviation, what do you got? And the only thing that they would ever offer me is drone repairmen. I was like, I'm not working on fucking drones. That's not going to get me a WAF packet. You know, get out of here. I'm not doing that fucking shit, man. And so I kept saying, like, look, give me a rotor, any rotor. Give me a Kiowa, give me a Blackhawk, give me an Apache, give me a Chinook. I don't give a fuck, man. Just give me, and they never would. I went back three, four times over the course of two years, and retention wouldn't give me what I wanted. I didn't want to reclass to anything else. You know, I wanted aviation. It was my life's dream was to be a pilot. So the Army didn't give me that choice. Yep. And as a result, I said, well, you know, I'm going to take the third option. I'm fucking out of here. See ya. I'm going to go to college and get my degree in aviation because you're not offering me what I want. And that's how it panned out for me. But uh, you're right. That's that's something that I've I've experienced with a lot of different soldiers, Marines, sailors, airmen. Generally speaking, a lot of it has to do with who you end up under, the people that you serve with, your leadership. Leadership has an enormous impact on your career in the military. Yep. But uh, it 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 was you know either there for them or it wasn't, and usually better leadership took better care of their troops to get them to schools, get them to retention, get them the job that they wanted to reclass to, yada, yada, et cetera, the assignment. I had, I didn't have terrible leadership. They just were oriented in a different direction. And things like schools and things like, you know, giving soldiers the retention opportunities that they wanted wasn't important. So I ended up getting out. And I don't regret it. I miss the Army. I still miss the Army. I I, miss the people. I miss the people. I do. I, I I also miss the organization. Still think the uh, well, the institution. I could live without. Yeah, I could live without that too. I could. You 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 probably had it a little bit easier with the institution though, because when you're from what I've been told, I don't know because I haven't been there, but with teams and groups and special operations units, the institution isn't really there as much. It's Correct. First name basis. Everybody's friends. That's accurate. Yes. Okay. It was. It was extremely institutionalized very low key and i think that was probably the biggest thing was when i made e9 sergeant major um going back to the regular army was a little bit of a culture shock that probably sucked right um it was figuring out how to operate within the new rules Uh that was the big thing so you went from special operations to regular army what kind of arm regular army units were you just in a sergeant major capacity over like whatever battalion they sent you to or whatever well first sergeant okay i, I was a master sergeant graduate of the sergeant major course ed what did you go to fort bliss for that i did yeah i used to do my paperwork in that in that school that was cool so that i was a non-promotable graduate of the sergeant major academy gotcha at that point okay. i got picked up the very next cycle because i had graduated and Apparently, I did better than I thought. I wanted it was sequence number two. Ah. <laughs> so I was promoted quickly. So they sent you from special operations through you. I guess you would have ended up in like unit leadership, company, battalion, that kind of thing. Yep. Right off the bat, um, I had a, I had run detachments within the structure in the spec ops community. Mm-hmm. But moving up to a company was a little bit bigger numbers wise. So it was ironic that my last gig as a first sergeant before I got promoted was to stand up a brand new MI company and deploy him. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did you deploy with? Oh, yeah. Where'd you go? 
We went to Warhorse. Okay. North of Bakuba That's in northern Iraq. So, uh, but I got promoted right before we left, literally the week before we left. So I lost the company. They moved me to brigade staff uh, as a staff sergeant major. Gotcha. And that was when they stood up the mobile uh, transition team. So the MTTs training Iraqi army, Iraqi police to stand up what we had taken apart when we first got in country. Right. Um, I was part of that initial stand up. So I was working with 5th fifth, fifth Division Iraqi Army. I was the S2 for the MIT for that because we didn't have enough MI captains. Uh-huh. So as a sergeant major, they put me in as the captain. So I actually have a non-commissioned officer evaluation report where I'm rated as an O3. Fucking A. <laughs> right on. It was part of the gig. Yeah. Sure. Again, be flexible. Yeah, that's right. Adapt and overcome. Yep. <laughs> So Iraq, and then how? So during OIF, OEF, how many times did you deploy to those regions? Was with with regular army units? Six total. Six, six. So okay. So let me get this straight. You were special. You were with special forces for a long time. You went all over the world, and then you got to the regular army as a first sergeant, sergeant major, master sergeant, and you deployed six more times during OIF, OEF. Yes. Jesus Christ. Voluntarily. Voluntarily. I kept. I'd contact. What was then HRC, Human Resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would simply ask, who's next? And, and I'd get silence on the end of the phone. What do you mean? Said, who's the next unit deploying that needs Sergeant Major? And they would gladly put me in because we had Sergeants Major who were dodging deployments. That's so crazy. I figured I'd make a point. You know, if you keep dodging deployments, you don't need to continue to serve. Because that spec four can't pick, that private can't pick, they're, right. they're going. You're a soldier. That's your job. Either get out or go. So the irony of it is, at the end of it all, I embarrassed the Sergeant Major of the Army. <laughs> Which one? I can't remember the one that I served under. It would have been, uh, hang on a second, I can picture him, I need to remember his name. Guys, by the way, um, just so you know, I am smoking a few cigarettes here and there, so if you hear me puffing and lighting and dragging, I apologize. Oh, for crying out loud. I'll think of his name in a minute, but the guy before the current. Um, okay. So that I did serve under him. Yeah. And uh, well, how did you embarrass We were not. Well, I went to a professional development stand-up at Leavenworth in 2011. Gotcha. Um, they were creating the brigade command sergeant major training program. And they were they were basically aligning it with the command program mm -hmm. that they had for the colonels. So they wanted to bring in the brigade level CSMs. They wanted to have a commander and a command sergeant major for the brigade. They wanted them to come through the command track together. A portion of the command track would be for the CSM. So they would be better prepared to support the commander. Okay. They already had the training track for the colonels. I was part of the first, basically, pilot program. Gotcha. Um, a, a real good buddy of mine, Ray Devins, who was an outstanding CSM, wound up going all the way up to, let's see, he was 25th ID CSM. He was uh, the, how did that work? The, good Lord.
Lord. I always forget the acronyms now. The Korea. There's so many of them. Yeah, but he was the CSM at the Korea level. Oh God. Over everybody. Are you talking about? He like, just retired recently. He was. What is he that wanna, called? PACCOM or something like that? Is yeah. That Pacific Command. I forget. No, something else with the Korean Peninsula. It was specific to all. It was 2ID and all the other units. I should know this. I was there. And, and... Army Forces Korea, I think, is what it was. Okay. Something along that line. Yeah, but, good enough. Um, Ray was a buddy of mine. We were Sarge's first class together, so mid-90s. That's how long I've known Ray. Um, Military is a small community, and you people follow you wherever you go. You Especially will... if you stay long. Yeah, long time, yeah. It thins out a lot, doesn't it? So we were in that pilot program together at Leavenworth. Um, General Petraeus, who was getting ready to go take over in Iraq right. at that point, right. came out to talk to the colonels and talk to all the CSMs that were coming through because that was new. And so I had the privilege of doing morning physical training with General Petraeus. Nice. The irony of it was we get to running. General Petraeus is a very good runner. Yes, that's what I, rec- yeah, yeah, I remember reading. So we go up Ridgeline Hill at Leavenworth, and Ray and I are pace for pace. And the general finally turns around and goes, what are you two the freaking, you know, you guys were the, the um, good Lord, I forgot the term in English, the Marks. You know, basically you were the guys they put in just to make sure I didn't outrun everybody <laughs> because we'd lost everybody else getting up onto the ridge. Damn. And Ray and I are just, we're actually talking with him while we're running up this ridge. Um, Ray and I had always been big runners. Yeah. So it was kind of funny to have the general finally turn around and go, all right, you know, what the hell? They gave me competition. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, we pushed him coming up that thing and... It was just funny to have him kind of realize we dropped everybody else as we went up that hill. You would have fucking killed me as a sergeant major. I was a terrible runner. <laughs> I could ruck until the end of time, but I hated running. I, was, I, I run now, but... Now, standards, that was the only thing I cared about. Meet the standard. Meet the standard. Right. You didn't have to meet my standard, because that's not fair. You know, I mean, I ran a 416 mile as a sophomore in high school. Damn. Yeah. So why would I ever expect anybody to keep up with me right. at that point? Um, but the Army standards, you know, the two-mile times based on age group, the um, six-mile times, 12-mile times for the standards for those different things, you know, the, the 18th Airborne Corps standard was you had to be able to do 12 miles rucking in three hours, Jeez. if I remember. So you were moving. That's fast. So my last company as a first sergeant, we met it. That's awesome. The company met it. Had to do it six times. Yeah. You were busting that ass, huh? Meet the standard. I, I told him, I said, look, I'm going to be right on the three-hour mark. You need to keep up with me. If you keep up with me, you're good. You fall behind me, you're not good. And you're going to make us do it again. Because we're going to keep doing it until everybody gets it. Gotcha. And the best part about it was the whole company made it. That's fucking awesome. All the standards. Yeah. But we had to do it a few times. Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming, uh, yeah, <laughs> a ruck like that is going to take some training. Um. Okay. So OAF, OEF six times. When was your, uh, 
When was your last deployment? 2009, 2010. Gotcha. I would have been in Iraq. Oh, okay. Iraq. Right as so we were part of the yeah, New Dawn. Yeah. The transition from OIF to Operation New Dawn. Okay. We literally, the last month that we were in theater was New Dawn. Okay. So yeah. the, the irony of that was I have four campaign stars because of that. Because I right. caught the beginning. I caught the first votes. I caught the uh, Arab Awakening. That was. And, and then I caught New Dawn. The Arab Spring, right? Yeah. Yeah. Was that intense? It was probably one of the best experiences I had in the military. That's was fun. watching the local people finally realize if you want to step up, you can. If you want to change your world, you can. Getting to see that was the first time, I think, in a long time they realized as an individual, I can have an impact. So as a senior soldier who had been there and experienced that, how did you feel about our withdrawal in 2011, the way that it was just like a snap and we were just pulling out? And then the fallout of that, the rise of ISIS, the Islamic Caliphate, what did that, how did that affect you? What did you think of that situation? Yeah. The only one I lost. To me, that was a dishonorable way to go. I think so, too. To drop that quickly. I think so, And too. all the other people, friends that I knew, soldiers I worked with, was only affiliated with because they were within the command structure that I was supporting at the time. But it's a perfect example of because our military is set up the way it is, we answer to our civilian leadership. Right. And when that decision was made, whether I liked it or not, you had to follow. It's irrelevant. Right. The order was to withdraw. Right. We withdrew. You raised your hand like that. Can you explain to everybody what that means? I wear a KIA memorial bracelet. Um, of all the units that I had, all the time I spent downrange, I lost one soldier. And she was at Fob Kalsu in Iraq. And it was an indirect fire incident that, that took her life. Um, Mortar. Rocket. Rockets. Three of them. So the, the thing that, that I will forever get to live with is, in my mind, somehow I didn't get it ingrained in her and her teammates that got wounded. Um, the trick was, if you're not right by a bunker and the wave's alarm goes off, Hit the ground, period. Get flat with Mother Earth. The reason is you have like a 99.97% chance of surviving the rounds coming in unless they hit you. Right. And it's because of the takeoff angle upon detonation of rockets and mortars. It's 15 degrees. Okay. So unless you're within six feet of the point of impact... None of it is going to hit you if you are laying flat on the ground. Right. The fragmentation goes up and out. Over you. Right. It wasn't the first rocket that got her. It wasn't the second one. Number three. Had she stood up or something? They were running to the bunker. Ah. That's goddamn unfortunate. And it's 
one of those things as a leader. I mean, it, it, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about it. What could I have done better? What could I have emphasized more? How could I have made it to where it's an automatic? I'm too far from the bunker. Get down. Just get flat with the ground. I feel like, I feel like uh, in a situation like that, it doesn't boil down to you as much. And, and I understand that as a leader, that'll weigh heavily on your conscience. But at the same time, war's war. And I never experienced it, so I don't understand this. But when I was in counseling at the VA in uh, Murfreesboro, we talked to group vets. Uh, you know, we do like a group thing where we'd sit around and talk about our experiences and stuff. And I like doing that because I learned a lot about the military and, and, and the previous experiences of general, because a lot of the guys were older. Right. But one thing that the counselors always tried to express was, you know, soldiers who carry guilt like that and think I failed somehow. And a lot of the, and it, it, that isn't necessarily true. Don't, don't think for a second. I feel like I failed. Right. I can't change the fact that I have remorse. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I understand that. Different nuance, sure, I okay. guess, is the best way to describe it. I got that. I can't forget what her family went through. I got to meet them. Yeah. I went back for the memorials at First ID. They were supporting First ID out of Kansas. And so the commander and I went back for the plaque dedications. We met the father and the mother to, you know, help them deal with going to that, seeing the memorial. Um, I'm still in touch with them. Yeah. Probably always will be. Um, unfortunately, that's the part of war that you don't hear a lot about. That's the cost. We lose people. And the trick is, how do you help the family deal with it? How do you help your soldiers go through that? You know, there's a whole other side that the Army never taught us. And thankfully, I had the privilege of working with a brigade psych when I was in spec ops, who got me focused on understanding, first, being prepared to take a life. Right. And then dealing with the aftermath in a healthy way. So, you know, you talked about when you mentioned about my riding, psych bicycling. Right. That's one of the big ways that I deal with it. The physical outlet of pushing myself riding because I can't run anymore. I've just about destroyed my knees. <laughs> so the cycling has taken the place of the running. It's a coping mechanism. Oh, big time. Big time. Yeah. And... So let me ask you this, um, and we're, we're kind of out of place. <laughs> we're jumping around on the questions here now, but would you say that that coping strategy is a way for you to deal with not just that experience about your fallen soldier, but all of the experiences that you went through in the military? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's PTSD is a reality. Absolutely. You cannot live in that environment as long as I did, and as long as there are others that are even longer than me, um, and not come up with a way of coping with it. Right. 
The challenge is, and this is where I have a lot of angst with any vet that claims PTSD as an excuse for their behavior. It is never an excuse. Right. You have to figure out how to deal with that stress in a healthy way. Because it's always going to be there. Nobody held a gun to your head. Nobody forced you to do whatever it was you went through that was so stressful. You did that voluntarily. So in my mind, to use that as an excuse to justify inappropriate behavior, uh, uncontrolled responses, which is what I've got, um, you can't do that. You have to at least admit it's your responsibility to come up with a healthy way to deal with it and then figure it out. You know, that's not anybody else's responsibility. That's mine. So let me ask you this. I, I mean, this is kind of a foregone conclusion after you described your career to me, but it, you must have seen combat repeatedly. And did it start, did you, fir- when, did you first experience combat earlier in your career during that like 80s, 90s stage? Or 90s. was it in the 90s? And so was it ubiquitous through your special operations ter- time? The possibility is always there. Always there. So you you accept that that's part of the job. Right. Um, I think one of the things that the, the site that I was working with found unique was that I was able to compartmentalize it and put it away so that it didn't interfere when I was having to do my job. Right. And then I would figure out how to manage it later and bring it back out and deal with it. It's one of the reasons why I ran so much. Because that was kind of how I gave my brain time to manage it in my time frame. Physical exercise, running, walking, rucking, that kind of thing, always was a very therapeutic experience. Cathartic. And cathartic is the word. That's a good word, yeah. And I, 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 I deal with a form of post-traumatic stress disorder that is non-combat related. It was from childhood trauma. And so the VA was gracious enough to, you know, offer me help with that. And I've, I've been in and out of counseling for the last six years since it became a serious problem. It seriously completely derailed my life because what I learned was that, you know, when you're older and you experience trauma, when you're an adult and you experience trauma, you're able to, like you said, compartmentalize it and deal with it in an adult way. When, when the stuff that happened to me, I was only like two years old, two, three years old, your brain is not capable. And so it's, it can be much larger inside your mind emotionally. The yeah. responses become oh, yeah. crazy. But one of the, I liked what you said about, it's, it's not even necessarily controlling it, but learning to strategize around it. Manage. Manage it so that it's not controlling your life. And that's something that I've ha- I'm still working on it every day. It's a constant fucking struggle. Welcome to life. Yeah, I know, right? That's, <laughs> welcome to life indeed. So I, I wanted to ask you, if you're okay with this, to describe what combat is like. If you had to explain it to a person who has never seen combat, what is combat like? And are there different kinds of experiences one, in your experience, can have during a combat environment? This is going to sound funny, but please don't think in any way I'm trying to trivialize what it is. You're riding a unicycle. Okay. The houses on both sides of the street are on fire. The road that you're riding on is on fire. 
the balls that you're juggling while you're riding the unicycle are on fire. And you're on fire, too. None of that, A, matters. B, has anything to do with you personally. And C, is changeable. That's combat. You don't know what you're going to get into. It's going to be completely foreign to anything you've ever experienced. And at the end of it, there's no guarantee that you're ever going to be able to get a complete grip on it and manage what you experienced in any way that's going to prevent it from harming you later. It just is. So learning to accept the fact that there are parts of it you're never going to be able to process. You just... We're not wired in any way that makes that manageable, explainable, comprehensible. Um, Outside of our realm of natural existence. Yeah. It's, it's stressed to an order that unless you've been through it, you really cannot understand it. Right. First of all, um, one of the things that I found out triggered me badly, and I didn't realize it till probably about three years after I got out. So last year was when I first became aware of it. Indirect fire absolutely set me off, like hypervigilant, ready for freaking berserker rage type stuff. Um, and it was the inability to respond. There's nothing you can do. Who am I going to shoot at? Right. It's indirect freaking fire. Yeah, it's coming out of nowhere. I have no idea who fired it. For those of you listening who don't know what indirect fire is, we, we've, we've used that term before. Indirect fire is any fire that's coming up and over and down on top of you. So like artillery, mortars, rockets, that's indirect fire. And the experience is, I would imagine, you're standing there. Pretty shitty. You hear the fucking shit. Someone says incoming, and then you don't know what the hell is going on. You know, what was really interesting was reading about World War I, which was probably the most rampant use of indirect fire in concentration. Mass artillery for the first time. For the first time. And seeing the, the, the well, yeah, yeah. There, there, I, I know. There, there are other examples. There are other examples previously, but we're, we're talking about like 120 millimeter howitzer cannons and there, there's 700 of them. They're firing in tandem for, you know, 45 sustained minutes to soften uh, an objective. And then the guys attack the objective on the field. And, you know, right. you, can, you can Google pictures of the Battle of Verdun or the Battle of the Somme and these fields that have been just fucking massacred with artillery fire. And it, it was a forest before and it was reduced to literally just a giant, you know, 200 square miles of mud pit by this artillery and then try to conceive inside my mind what it would have been like to have been uh, a doughboy or a British soldier or a French soldier in 1914 on the ground or a German soldier. or a German soldier receiving this unbelievable amount of incoming and you're just in a trench and there isn't fucking shit that you can do about it. And then try to translate that into a modern experience. I can't, I can't, I can't think of anything that would, that would be like that. But, but that made you, that set you to another degree. Yeah. I, I was, it was funny, too, because it's electronic devices, when they don't do what I want them to do. <laughs> Similar? 
The first time it happened, I did not realize what it, I went completely overboard reacting to it. Um, we were at Lowe's Supermarket down in Monterey, and they have their, you know, if you're a member program, you get a discount on your purchase. And so the cashier explains that. I'm like, sure, I'll sign up. Say, Sir, please go over to the computer and fill in your info. I get on the keyboard and I hit the first button and it starts filling in multiple inputs. Basically, you hit the button and it just... It just kept going. Yeah, okay. All the way. And like... Key stuck. Until I hit backspace. And then it stopped. So I clear it all out. I start again. And it does it again. I clear it again. I start over. It does it again. So now I'm getting a little hot. I'm not happy with this computer. Mm -hmm. But I'll be goddamned if I'm going to let it beat me. So I'm going to try again. Fuck this inanimate object. <laughs> Which is completely the wrong response. It should have been, oh, it's fucked up. I need to get on another one. Yeah. No. No. I'm going to make this son of a bitch work. <laughs> what I didn't realize is I'm now vocalizing at the computer. People are backing up away from it. They're hearing you freak out on this thing. Yeah, like I'm um, swearing out loud. Didn't realize I was out loud. To me, it's all internal right. monologue. Now, my wife, realizing what's going on, basically hits me in the shoulder and, and says, and God love her for it, you're scaring the straights. <laughs> At which point, I, uh, now I'm waking up and realizing People are 10 to 12 feet and backing up away from me because I've been swearing at the computer. Yeah. For a stupid reason. But it was something that you couldn't even control. Your brain was just reacting. Not, not recognizing that that was a trigger for me. So your wife has probably been very instrumental in helping you cope. How long have you been married? 34 years. 34 years. She's been with me the whole time. So she knows me better than anybody. Yeah. Probably even than me. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. That's uh that's something that that's one of the questions I wanted to ask was how important is family to keeping you on an even keel and and how close how 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 well connected to them did you remain throughout all of your experiences being deployed constantly and always overseas? Ironically, my brother and sister. Yeah. My mother passed in 2011, ALS. Okay. Um we're not close. I see. They do not understand. My brother's a National Guardsman, never been deployed, never volunteered to deploy. Um, so this teammate of mine that's up in uh, Bumpus in Virginia. Okay. Um, Pat Godick is more family than my brother and my sister. I understand. You know, I mean, it, it's... You see the, the meme on Facebook all the time about blood versus family. Um, unfortunately, with the military, that can be extremely true. Yeah, definitely. Especially when you go through those experiences. And they don't get it. Right. And they don't choose to get it. And that, that's okay. I do not hold that against them. But I'm also not going to tolerate dealing with them being the way they are about Everything I've been through. Right. Um, they chose their path. I've chosen mine. 
And unfortunately, that means we're divergent. Ah, happens amongst family sometimes. That would be the other side of it. You know, I've come to find out that out of the majority of my family members, for whatever reason, I'm the only one that believes that people should be given the opportunity to make mistakes. And it's okay when they make mistakes. Yeah, the trick is how they recover from the mistakes. Right. In their world, that's not something you're allowed to do. It's a lack of emotional intelligence. I don't ascribe my view to anyone else. I get you. I understand. Because that's what lets me sleep at night. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I don't pretend to understand anybody else. The only person I can even try to understand is me. That's fair. And even that's not well done. That's a fair assessment. I, uh, all the time that I've spent counseling and, and learning about myself and going through my experiences and dealing with my past and stuff like that, I, I've I've come to understand that Something I think that's pervasive in, in not just the military society, but the, the American society, modern society, is a lack of understanding regarding mental health, uh, a lack of um, Absolutely. concern or, or, well, compassion for people and accepting that as a species, we are a fucking mess and, and we, we're going to make mistakes. Can be. We can't. We, you're, you're exa- sure. Yeah. You're abs- yeah. That's a better way to put it. We can be extremely messy. And our lives can be com- completely baffling to others. And the best, it, it's been my experience, that the best possible policy for interacting with other humans is to try and understand. Even if it's, if it's something very difficult to understand, try and, and see things from their perspective. And I think that that's, that's something that comes with the territory of being a military person. Because yeah. you're, you're shoved into an environment where you're suddenly going from all you've ever known is this like small world of you know home whatever the places you've lived before that and then you are exposed to people from all over the world from every race all the genders creed all man everything yeah creed religion faith i worked with one of the uh first oh can't believe I've forgotten the religion. They are from India. They wear the turbans, but they are one of their big tenets of their faith is defending the defenseless Sikh. 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 Yeah. Okay. I am familiar. So I had one of the first soldiers that was given permission by the army to wear the turban. That's awesome. He was in my brigade, my first brigade out at Lewis. Okay. Um, we have been friends ever since because I took the time to actually learn about tenets of his faith before he ever arrived. Huh? I was notified he was coming in, and I went, I better understand at least what his basic faith is before he shows up because we're going to have those in the formation who are going to give him shit. And the irony of it was I took the time to learn how to not fight. Close up and personal is what happens when you try to be quiet. So you better know how to use an edged weapon. So I did. That tenet I just told you of the Sikh religion, defending the defenseless, is a huge part of who they are. They carry knives. They believe very firmly in knowing how to use a tool, like a knife, 
well. That put me in such a good position with him because the very first thing he asked me about, he saw I had a knife and I had it horizontally mounted on my belt under my blouse. Okay. And I had to move it to sit down. I would pull it out so that it wouldn't jab me in the gut. Yeah. I sat down. And his first question was, I see you carry a knife. Why do you carry it that way? That became the opening dialogue for him understanding that I had taken the time to get to know what the Sikh religion valued and what I could expect from him and opened the door for me to be able to explain to him, look, I expect you to be a good ambassador of your faith because they're not going to understand the difference between you and any other turban-wearing person in the world. To them, you all look alike. Mm. Mm. So the best part about that was, here we are, that was 2009, 10 years. 10 years. We're still friends. That's awesome. That's an experience that I've had, um, meeting people from different cultures and retaining friendship for a long time. Simran Lamba. That's his name, huh? Mm-hmm. Simran. I, I imagine in your travels, you've probably encountered all manner of faith and, and origin. and Oh, yeah. yeah. Buddhist, Taoist. So on a, on a bit of a lighter note, of the places that you've been, is there a place in your mind that stands out as being somewhere you really love being? Just a maybe a duty station or a deployment area or something like that? Anything along the Croatian coast of the Adriatic was just unbelievably beautiful on the Mediterranean. So the Adriatic Sea is part of the Mediterranean there. Between uh, the Italian coast and the coast of Croatia, Dubrovnik split uh, as you come down that side of the Mediterranean. Just, I had the privilege of working in that area for a while. I got to meet the people. I got to thoroughly enjoy the food. I'm, I love to eat. Uh, don't let the size fool you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just some of the best cuisine I think I've ever had. Can you describe it compared to other foods? I've never had Croatian food. Greek. Very, very much Greek okay. style. Okay, I'm very um, familiar with Greek. So if if you've got any kind of understanding of, of Greek-type food yeah. and what tzatziki is like, okay, yeah, sure. and you understand the, the Croat-Serb version is called kaimak. Kaimak. And that goes with all of their foods. Okay. Um, their... Um, I'm thinking of it. The direct translation is going to be a, a blended leveno meso, um mixed ground meat uh, that they make chivapchichi, chivapchichi, which is a grilled kind of not cased sausage. Oh, think of it that way. Kind of like chorizo. Oh man, is it good? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's because of the veal, um, standard beef. Um, chicken, and I forgot what else they mix into it. it. It just, it is such an amazing flavor that they've created because they, they've learned to work with what they've got. Um, salads over there. Oh, I bet they're Lettuce wild. is animal food. Okay. 
So all the salads are cabbage-based. Oh, okay. Makes for a very different texture. I learned to absolutely love it. No dairy dressing. Huh. But all of Very limited power, yes. So you can't keep it fresh. You can't keep it safe. You don't put it out. Right. So everything was oil and vinegar-based. That makes sense. So now, because of the amount of time, I got five years on the ground in the Bosnia region. Um, I love oil and vinegar on a salad. Yeah. Yeah, we eat that. My family's Italian, part Italian, and Arabic. Okay. We're also Arabic. We're, we're Lebanese. Lail. Yeah. <laughs> well, Lail, Lail actually isn't. That's, um, that's my dad's side of the family. That's like really? Irish. Irish. Uh, Scottish. Is it? Yeah. I wondered about that. Yeah. It's, uh, okay. Yeah. My, my, uh, my Arabic side of the family was originally, their name was Khyosin. And when they crossed the pond in the 20s, or it was like pre-20s, like 1910, um, the guy at the immigration station was like, that's fucking too foreign. We're going <laughs> to change that to Joseph. How does, it, how does that sound? And they were like, all right, cool. So that's what the family name, the Arabic family name was Joseph in America. And then on oh, the Italian side. Anglicized names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they had to. On, on the Italian side, it, they didn't really have to change that. It was DiPaolo. And so... You know, I'm I'm the son of some Depalos and some Chilsons, and then on my dad's side of the family, it was Lael, and I'm not as familiar with that origin, but um, hmm. but yeah, we 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 do the we do the the olive oil and vinegar too. We I, man, I I I always keep a bottle of olive oil around here because we, and I, I I'm living on the keto diet lately, so I've been cooking with butter. <laughs> but before that, it was all always olive oil and garlic and and cumin and that kind of thing. Um, so. You said you were in the Bosnian region. Was that would that have been during our conflict in Kosovo, Bosnia, Serbia? Ninety two, ninety three. Okay. Late ninety five through two thousand. Okay, so yeah, you were there for the big show, the the Bill Clinton big show. What was that conflict like? Because we don't talk about that one as much. Think Hatfields and McCoys, families fighting it out huge like you live on the east side of the valley my family lives on the west side your uncle killed my grandfather fuck you i gotta kill you that's the kind of mentality so it was it was my understanding that it was very ethnically oriented but that that was that kind of struggle it was two ethnicities battling one another yeah so tuzla was a huge croat community with a small Serb number of families. So, you know, before the mainstream media decided to cover it, they just cleansed the Tuzla Valley. I remember hearing about that. Killed all the Serbs. Right. So when we pulled into Tuzla Air Base, there were no Serbs. They'd been removed. Wasn't it on the order of like hundreds of thousands of people or something? When you look at the total numbers. Total numbers. Yeah, so when you got up by Birchko, when you got down to um, Modica, Bolsansky Shamas, um, again, because I speak, that's one of my languages. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I got to know them a little too well. And because I look like this, I fit in very easily as a Serb. I had pretty much carte blanche ability to move around. Uh, people just wanted to know where my family came from. Uh-huh. So did you did you maintain the facial hair? Mark is sporting a a very dapper beard, quite long. 
but very trimmed at this point. Very trimmed, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I've seen pictures. Longer. <laughs> I've seen pictures where I was looking. You were looking pretty bare. Uh, or, uh, what's Pushing ZZ top. Yeah, yeah. Dusty roads. I'm super jealous. I can't. Grow Billy beer. Gibson. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You were looking like you were ready to ride a buffalo. It was, it was, it was quite long. But so you, you did you did you sport a beard, a lot of facial hair most of the time when you were operating wherever you were, if it fit. Okay. Based on the cultural norms. Right. I was very, because I would pick up the language, even if it was just one of the languages in a given area, I was very studious about cultural norms for males in that society. Understanding how they relate, understanding how they deal with females, understanding their ties to religious communities, understanding their natural tendencies um, in the way they would behave in public. You wanted to fully adapt to their culture as much as possible. How else to hide in plain sight? And so your job there, I, so it's my understanding that with special forces, the job is, is their, their creed is de oppresso liber to liberate the oppressed. Right. And the job is to stand up basically foreign militaries that can defend themselves against enemies we deem bad. Right. That, that would be one of the main missions. One of the main missions. Foreign internal defense. Foreign internal defense. And so is that what you would have been doing in that region or sometimes? What are the other jobs? Are, are, can, are you allowed Direct to Direct action. Right, combat. So taking out targets. Right. Communication centers, uh, manufacturing facilities, production facilities for armament, munitions, vehicles, fuel. You know, if that was the plan for taking down the enemy to reduce their available supplies, that would be a direct action. Okay. We would do strategic reconnaissance. So long-range surveillance, LERP, long-range reconnaissance patrols, um, DASR, FID, and finally unconventional warfare would be training the what during Vietnam was called the Mike Force. So taking indigenous populations, training them to be the guerrillas against whatever regime we were trying to change. Would that have kind of started with, um, would that have origins in, say, World War II with our, our operations of, of teaching the, the resistance, the OSS, and then... Yeah. Office of Strategic Service. Right, exactly. And then it, it developed into special operations. And then, so, when you would do this direct action kind of thing, would that have been like a joint operation of you guys going in, using your equipment as well as calling in maybe artillery, air support, stuff like that? Usually you're far enough in that that's not available. Ah. Uh, yeah. That's deep, deep penetration for that kind of stuff. So it would be figuring out how to get a hold of the right resources to execute once we got in. Would you end up using a lot of foreign equipment? Potentially. Yeah. That might be the requirement because we simply couldn't bring in what we needed. We would have to find it and either create it, build it, or steal it. Right. So I know that during your time as a regular Army soldier, you would have been using, everybody uses the same stuff. It's like M4 carbine or M16, whatever they give you, and then an IBA, Kevlar, yada, yada. But when you were operating as a special operations guy, was there a particular kit that you would always carry with yourself? People love to hear about equipment. Totally dependent on region. Okay. So that that was, you're far enough in where you can't be resupplied. 
Yeah. You're not carrying an M16. Right. You're running an AK. I was going to say, probably an AK, right? Or an AKM. Okay. Or an RPK. Or, you know, some variation on that theme. Okay, I got a question about the AK and the AKM. All right. I know that they're two different weapons. What's the difference? Can you tell me? Solid wood shoulder stock AK. Okay. Folding stock paratrooper type AKM. Okay. Outstanding. And and whenever you were operating in these smaller countries, I would imagine that Soviet block equipment like that would have been the ubiquitous fairly standard yeah. availability. Yeah. Was ammunition easy to come by for those equipments as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's everywhere. Everywhere. Yep. 7.62 by 39. 3.9. Yeah. Well, for the AKs, I would just have to think because when you run to SKS, it's now 51. And if you're running one of the sniper systems, it's 54. Right. Yeah. 5.4R. Yeah. I, when, my first gun when I was a kid was a Mosin Nagant because you used to get them fucking things for like $92. And it was a beast of a rifle. I had the I had the M44 carbine variant, and it would leave L-shaped bruises on my shoulder after five rounds with that 5.4R round. But uh, if you if if you were in, if you were going into a firefight, would you have preferred American equipment or the Sovietsky stuff? How far am I shooting? Medium range, I guess. All right, define medium, because to me that's 600 meters. Okay, so you define to me your field of fire, and then what weapons you would have selected. I could get away with using any of the Soviet-style weaponry out to about 800 meters with the sniper setups. Uh, I would not use any of their AK-based stuff unless I was 200 meters. So that intervening range, I would definitely prefer U.S. Mm -hmm. because it covers that middle ground. Mm -hmm. And then if you were on really long range, anything past a click, U.S. Period. 50 cal. 308, something like that. 300 Win Mag. 300 Win Mag. Yeah. Any, anything in those calibers. Uh, nowadays, you can even get the 338 uh, Lapua. Yeah, yeah, that thing's a beast. So, again, but that's now you're at 14, 1700. You know, there's a point where how far are you trying to shoot? What are you realistically seeing for targets? That's really what dictates which weapon you want to use. When you when when you were operating with special forces and you were on direct action or you were in a combat environment, did you guys have control of the situation most of the time? Would you say that you were better at your job than most of the rest of the world? Yeah, it. it I mean, I know the whole point. No, no, but but the whole point is, you're going to absolutely mass as much in your favor, so that the result is you win. Right, but it never goes according to plan, right? No, ever. Well, one once. time. <laughs> so, 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 tell tell me a little about what would go wrong. What 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 would change? How what, what was what was um, dynamic on the field? My favorite, yeah, was the one where we were going to get a particular bad guy in Bosnia that was wanted for ICTI, International Criminal Tribunal. Oof, bad guy, Yugoslavia. Real yep. bad guy. We go set up security. Get the read 24 hours out. Bring in the snatch team. And find out that there's a bus that does a regular pickup that particular day. Right around the time we were thinking we were going to grab the bad guy. So I got a whole busload of witnesses. Oh. <laughs> yeah. 
So guess what didn't happen that day? So you didn't pull it off, huh? No, we we basically went back to the drawing board and, and reset because that's big. Yeah. You don't. You don't want to be seen doing this shit. No. Did you ever bag the fucker? Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad. We got him. I'm glad. We got him. We got him. <laughs> glad to hear that. Hmm. Oh, man. So, okay, that, that goes into something else I wanted to ask is... In your experiences in the military, describe something that was outstanding that happened. You already told us about watching the Arab Spring take place and seeing these people rise up. I thought that was really cool. Can you tell me about another time in the military service that you experienced something that was amazing, positive? The humanitarian resource uh, missions that we were able to do, especially in the Baghdad area, because you had pocket communities of Sunni and Shia constantly fighting. And when they figured out that if they would keep their shit together and not be at each other's throats, we would actually bring in medical support teams and run clinics and help them fix their hospital systems and fix their uh, water treatment systems for delivery of potable water and basically get their hygiene for their public utilities back to where it was when Hussein was in place. Only now, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you believe. Just don't be at each other's throats all the time. When we started being able to send out both the construction teams and the medical teams out to do these local community support missions, that was a really good feeling because that's how I knew we were changing minds. And that was the thing. You had to get that mindset to change of where I don't care what you believe. You know, you believe what you want. I'm going to believe what I want. It's irrelevant when it comes to being able to wake up in the morning and not have to worry about getting shot stepping out my front door. So that would have been a big component of the Iraqi culture before the war was that everybody hated each other based on what they believed. Yeah. Sunnis, Shiites, and then the Kurds up north, right? Whole separate, yeah, yeah. The Kurdish minority up north, above Irkutsk, yeah. and that, that whole region between uh, Iraq, Turkey, Syria, and Iran. So, back to Iraq. Do you feel that our mission in Iraq was a good mission? Getting Hussein out of there, yes. Taking him out and dismantling the governmental systems that would have helped minimize the chaos yeah we kind of fucked that up i believe so too my opinion um but a lot of that's hindsight you know and and i'll be the last person to tell you that i enjoy people that play armchair quarterback when you've got no skin in the game fuck you you got some skin in the game and you want to tell me how we can do it better i'm all ears that's what matters if you're there doing your part, helping make it better, and you've got an idea that we need to consider, tell me all about it. So when you were downrange, when you were a part of those missions, you must have been aware of how much pushback the people were giving to our operations in Iraq, how much negativity there was about the the conflict at, at large, and how badly people wanted us to pull out. How did you feel about that? These people perfect, don't know. Perfect example of you haven't bothered to learn what's happening over there right? and what we created because we didn't have a good plan going in. Right. 
So in my book, when you did that, us, we bought the requirement to at least help them get to a point where we can go, now it's yours. It's your opportunity. Yeah, it's your responsibility. What you do from here on out is yours. You think we failed in that aspect? As a res- I, mean- I think it's been an ongoing target. And because we've been dealing with the political side of it more than we've been dealing with reality, it has made it difficult yeah. because it keeps shifting. Yeah, especially with our parties swapping control. You had Bush. Bush was or Bush two was in Bush forty two was in charge when I enlisted, and then Obama took office, and the entire organizational structure, the the mission, all of it seemed to start to change. And by the time I got out, we were pulling out of Iraq, we were drawing down Afghanistan. And then I get out of the army, and a couple years later, ISIS is just running rampant, just fucking, it was a slaughter. I remember daily, it was all you heard about was how ISIS became this thing. And I remember thinking, when I was in, wondering, why the fuck are we just abandoning everything that we've done over there? This doesn't seem to make sense to me. Is this a political thing? Is this a real strategy? What's going to happen? And I remember thinking... This is going to create some kind of vacuum over there. Yep. And 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 being told that by my leadership in the military, who th- who said, you know, those people are not quite ready. They're still very fragile. What we've created. We, I mean, you know, in in terms of a society, it takes generations to really solidify a kind of strength in a in a nation. Exactly. That leaves it to be a sovereign state, and we didn't give them that. We were there for fucking a decade. We bombed the shit out of them. We destroyed their military. We fucked the entire infrastructure up, spent the next like eight years trying to rebuild it all. And then one day, well, we're done. Yep. See you later. Good luck. And then, of course, the next thing you see is American military Humvees with ISIS painted on the fucking side. And to me, that was I'm I'm when I, when it comes to politics, personally, I'm, I'm pretty moderate, dude. Like I, I sit sort of in the middle. I can see merit on both sides of the aisle, but when, but in just in terms of like military strategy, to me, that seemed fucking stupid. I just didn't think that that was the right thing to do. Would you, it, when you, anytime I hear somebody talk about a global focus and how we need to be, America needs to be a part of the global economy. America needs to be part of the global leadership. The minute I hear that, the first thing that goes through my mind is, you don't want to actually make hard decisions. You don't want to live with the potential consequences of the choices you have to make. So now you want to do guilt by committee. Kiss my ass. <laughs> I have no time for that. Don't get me wrong. I believe the time will come when there will be some version, some form of a world government. Absolutely. That's, I that's... hope to God we make it that long. Yeah. You know? I feel like because... it's inevitable. That's something that will happen yeah. Um, if things go right. In the interim, we've got a long way to go. And we have a lot of reality to accept. Yeah. And change. And change. Interesting to hear about that from the perspective of a soldier that had as much time in the field as he did. To, you know, everybody has their opinions. and, And this is America where, you know, (laughs) <laughs> we've reached the age of uh, ultimate division. Party politics are, are you know, par- identity politics and party politics are now in full swing. And that, that stuff, personally, I, I try to, av- I, I want to avoid politics as much as possible on the podcast, but it's, it's difficult to avoid that when we're talking about 
global conflicts, especially global conflicts that we've been involved in as a nation. What, wh- wh- where do you think we are now as a military, as a, as a, as a, as, as the military power in the world right now? I believe we're still capable of taking down any other military. It's just how much time and how much resource we'd have to spend to do it. Yeah. Um, I still believe we're top dog. Right. But I question the degree to which that needs to continue to be. I think we could look at it in terms of what do we need to keep so that it's not worth trying to inflict harm on us. So nobody else would ever even consider it just because they know the retribution would be worse than anything else they could do. So I don't think we need to continue to be the big dog on the block. Now it's more a matter of make it painful enough that nobody would think twice because they don't want to go down that road. But maybe dial it back. You're familiar with the concept. Get other people to buy in. Yeah. And be a part of the solution. Right. Right. That's that's a that's a common thread that I've that I've experienced in discussion with other military people. You're familiar with the concept of the military industrial concept or complex. Complex. Complex, yeah. Do you think that we are still heavily slaves to the MIC as Eisenhower defined it? I think to not at least keep an open mind to the influence that has on political decisions at the nation state level. Yeah. would be Ignorant. Yeah. That will always be something you have to watch. It's always going to have skin in the game. Right. Which means there's always going to be people that are pushing it because they're trying to make money. And they yeah. don't really care about the consequences. Capitalist country, baby. Say hello you know, to Halliburton. That, that, that's the downside of a true free market economy is that you always have to be watching for when that's going to go south and do something unethical, immoral. That concept is always going to be there if you truly want to have a free market economy. Right. But we have watchdogs. We have elements in the government that are supposed to make sure that doesn't happen. Whether or not they're empowered to do that is another discussion. Yeah. Yeah, and then we're getting into oh, the American government at large, and that turns into, my God, oh, a quagmire. Bigger discussion. <laughs> <laughs> something about a swamp comes to mind. Yeah, something, something, swamp, swamp, yeah. Um, okay, so let me ask you this. How did your service affect your life? At 16, I remember telling my mom, that when I was old enough, I was leaving the United States. I was going to go live in Canada because I was tired of the BS. Mm -hmm. If it weren't for the fact that family seems to be fully willing to reach out to me whenever they need help, I'd be in Canada already. (laughs) So did, did it change anything? Ironically, no. Um, did it confirm a lot of things that, I didn't realize at 16 that now at 55, I fully realize, unfortunately, you know, that that's again, welcome to life. 
How did it change you as a man? It gave me the understanding of what it means to commit to something and the, the potential cost. You don't have that as a, as a juvenile, as an adolescent, even as a, uh, a young adult. You simply can't because you don't have the experiences to show you what that is. You do not understand what it means when somebody goes for the first open democratic vote in Iraq and you've got the Mutad al-Sadr's telling them that if you vote, you're an enemy of the people and you're no better than the infidels that were fighting. So in other words, you having purple ink on your thumb just made you a target because you voted. And we really take for granted the freedom that we have, the rights that we have, don't we? That's the one thing I will say that, that drives me nuts is the idiots that you know, bitch and complain about how bad things are in the U.S. Oh, man, they're out of their fucking minds. I don't know where it comes from either. I honestly, maybe it's the entitlement or maybe it's because we're we're so complacent as a result of our success. Don't get me wrong. There's hundreds of things we could do better. Always. Always. That's the reality of it. My take is how about you recognize how well off we are, how much we can do for our fellow man and start doing it. Right. Do you think that the United States being the global force that it is, is a good thing? I think as long as we keep an eye on the parts that matter. So having the programs to help those who can't help themselves but not establishing a nanny state, not letting big government take over everything, making people accountable for the choices that they make, but giving them the opportunity to make those choices and live with the consequences. Right. You know, I mean, that to me, that's the, the thing about the concept of America that I think a lot of people don't get is that you have a myriad of choices that you have to make. But you are not free from the consequences of those choices. That's what matters. Yeah, you're free to make any choice. You're also free to live with the consequences of that choice. Right. The United States has cultivated a lot of consequences over the last few decades, especially. Um, okay. What other juicy questions can I ask you? This has been a really fun interview so far. I, I feel like I'm learning a lot. I uh, I always appreciate getting that perspective from higher. Um, were you ever injured in your service? Thankfully, no. Really? Um, outside of typical training type minor injuries. Yeah. Um, I've got a separated clavicle. I tore the LT ligament in my left wrist. Um, I've got osteoarthritis in my C5, C6 cervical column, spine, uh, back of my neck, and lower plane, interior, right knee, um, just typical overuse. Stress-induced. Right. Yeah. Exercise-caused arthritis. Gotcha. But that's it. You never got hit or anything? No. That's good to know. So, 
I also wanted to ask you, it was obvious that you did lead soldiers. And as a person who's had an enormous amount of experience in leadership position, what makes a good leader and what makes a bad leader, especially in a military environment? The best leaders I got to work with showed me that the leader should never be too far removed from the lead. You've got to be daily involved with what your soldiers are doing. You've got to be out there checking up on them, seeing what they're experiencing, experiencing it with them. Because to me, that shows them how important their jobs are. The fact that you're going to take the time to come out and be there and ask them how they're doing and talk to them as if their opinion matters, because it does. You know, no one person has all the answers. The best part about it was getting input from my junior enlisted about how to do things better because they see it every day. I don't. I'm up here, you know, filling in the commander with what I'm seeing day to day operations and training. That's my job as a senior enlisted. Officers do plans, budget, and then long-range mission stuff. That's what the officers do. The day-to-day ops and the training side of it is the enlisted side. That's what we did. But as a senior enlisted, understanding, taking the time to get down and watch my cooks in the dining facility, go see my medics in the ER, go talk to my fuelers, out there in the motor pool, you know, talk to my mechanics in the motor pool, find out, are my folks doing the right things, maintaining their PMCS, preventive checks and maintenance service programs for all the vehicles so that we don't have problems with the half shafts wearing out at the universal joint. The boots are staying on there the way they're supposed to. The sand isn't chewing them up because we're out there in the middle of a, a dust storm trying to drive combat logistic patrols uh, when we, we don't need to. Um, yeah, just understanding that as a senior leader, you've got to make sure you make time for junior people because that's how you're going to stay grounded in what's happening at the unit level. Flip side of the coin, you want to be a bad leader? Don't check up on your junior. Don't go out and see what they're doing on a daily basis. Make yourself the priority for everything that's going on. I got to see that. I got to see senior leaders that behaved like that downrange. And needless to say, we did not get along well. And I was not one to keep my mouth shut. So I told people exactly what I thought. Didn't always help. <laughs> But I wasn't going to let somebody continue running around telling everybody what a great person they were when the reality was the opposite. You know, my favorite was a particular general who had put out nobody was allowed in his headquarters without their badge. So the day that one of my specialists politely tried to remind the general that his badge was not visible and he was inside the headquarters, And he started rubbing his stars. And I happened to be there. So I called him out on it. I dismissed the specialist. I was battalion sergeant major. I said, sir, I really would appreciate you getting your badge because per your order, 
Nobody is allowed in this headquarters without their badge. Period. Seems kind of shitty to issue a command you're not going to follow yourself. So I didn't mind embarrassing him. <laughs> I could play this game. I'm what sure are you going to do, E4, make me retire? Yeah, I'm sure that E4 really appreciated it, too. Oh, he was, it, it, I ran into him later. He's friended me on Facebook. That's still, that's his favorite story. Yeah. yeah. And I told him, I was like, look, at that to me, I could not do less than that. It's amazing how little incidents like that can have a really lasting impression on a person's perception of good leadership versus bad leadership. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had, I, and I was far from perfect. I made my mistake. Oh, we all do. But my mistakes were excess. Kind of like when I booted one general's driver's vehicle because he parked where I told him not to, and I made the general late for a meeting. <laughs> so I, I got my ass chewing for that. Well, isn't there a saying in the Army that nobody ever made it to Sergeant Major without some Article 15s and counseling statements? Pretty much. Yeah. You can fuck up to learn, right? Well, my, it's my favorite quote. Yeah. So if you're supposed to train my driver, Sergeant Major, who's supposed to train you? <laughs> From the general after I made him late for his meeting. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I kind of well, That would be you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Outstanding. Oh. It's nine one one fire department. Oh yeah. That's I'm far. I'm too far out. You you do fire rescue, right? Yeah, I work with uh, Skull Camp down in uh, Low Gap, and that was one of the things my medical background and my high rescue angle training has come in very handy with. They've been happy to have me. Yeah, I bet. So, and it's it's a great bunch of guys I get to work with. I enjoy being able to help support my neighbors, putting out the fires, doing the medical calls. Um, I've had the privilege of actually recovering somebody that was pinned in a wreck. Oh, wow. And then seeing her... Two months back. Oh, wow. You know, out and about. Doing okay. Yep. So, yeah. So, that goes into my penultimate question. Um, How was your transition back from military life to civilian I life? I mean, how is it? How is it? Right, yeah. Because you're, yeah, I guess your transition doesn't end. Yeah, figuring this shit out. You're fucking 30, 30 years in the uniform. It It is... And ironically, the, the professional cycling group that I was working with last weekend up in Montebello on the Blue Ridge, um, they, their focus is professional-level cycling training. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I would be remiss not to also put in a really good push for the fact that uh, David Lipscomb and the CIS training program, CIS training system out of New York City is as much a life coach as he is a cycling professional coach. Gotcha. Um, he has absolutely helped people through some pretty traumatic events, uh, business, physical, medical. Uh, it, it, the more I work with them, the more amazed I am and realize there's a reason I wound up having the privilege of being able to support them doing SAG uh, support activity for their cycling events uh, two times out of the year. They do an April climbing event, which is why they're on the Blue Ridge. Mm -hmm. And then they do a what they call a tour of Virginia in October, a much more laid back end of the season kind of thing. 
But these are people who do 100-mile rides. Four days, 33,000 feet of climbing. That's wild. So, you know, I told you I'm, I'm at about 115 average per week. Yeah. Yeah, I'm barely putting a dent in what they did in four days. Hardcore. So having the opportunity to work with them, I come to realize that that's something that I definitely want to be a part of, you know, as I figure out who is Mark. You know, I'm out of the military now. Yeah, I work with the fire department. I'm a volunteer at the community center down in Logab. I work with Corbett down at the bike shop. I ride. Um, what else? You know? What else can I do in my life to make a difference? Because I really believe any of us that make it as far as I've made it at this point, if you're not looking at payback, I've had some unique opportunities. I've been privileged to see some of the things I've seen around the world. I owe somebody big time. Yeah. So the question is, how are you going to do it? One of my firemen. I need to give him a call. Okay. Um, we can. We, we're we're going to be later. We'll, yeah. Well, we'll we'll wrap this up here shortly. We we're we're at about two hour mark. That's probably sufficient for the listener. Okay. Um. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to. I wanted to ask you what. For someone who's considering joining the military, what piece of advice would you give them? Try to be as open-minded about the opportunities that the military presents you and do not self-eliminate. Don't quit. Ever. Don't physically be able to finish something, but put everything you've got into it until that point. Make them tell you no. I made a career out of making the Army tell me no. That's how I went from being an MI geek to having the opportunities that I had because all of a sudden they realized every time they sent me to a school, I graduated. And it didn't matter whether it was shooting, running, jumping, swimming. I didn't care. It was the opportunity to be more, to be able to do more. So the challenge is don't ever quit something because it's hard. It's hard for a reason. Figure it out. That sounds like an excellent piece of advice. On the other side of the coin, if you were going to speak to a civilian who is going to interact with veterans, especially veterans of our current conflicts, but also veterans of previous conflicts, what would you want to say to those individuals regarding interacting with our veterans? Learn to be thick-skinned. We can be extremely self-deprecating, but the flip side of the coin is we can be absolute assholes if we think you're deliberately being stupid, obtuse, poking fun at us. You're, we're probably the worst for turning on our own, you know, eating our dead mm-hmm. type thing. Mm-hmm. We're used to that. So don't, don't start something you can't finish. <laughs> You know, if you're going to deal with vets, recognize you better understand some of the ways that we've dealt with life. You know, that comment about black humor. Uh, When you've seen some of the things that we've been through, you kind of have a really warped 
sense of what's funny. Mm-hmm. But that's a defense mechanism. It's a way of dealing with the stress. It's a way of giving yourself time and space and distance to deal with it properly. Properly does not mean in a way you might like. Properly is just the way that I can manage it so that I'm not having that unanticipated, uncontrolled reaction. Right. That's what I'm trying to avoid because that's not good. Gotcha. And if you were going to speak to a veteran who's out of the military and who's dealing with all of that, whether he's combat veteran or not, what would you say? What piece of advice would you give that soldier or sailor or airman or Marine or Coast Guard? Reach out when you need to. Do not, do not, not ask somebody for help. That's the hardest thing for some people to get past is reaching out because they think it's a weakness. Hell no. Not with some of the stuff you wind up seeing in the military and outside of the military. And you don't always have all the tools that you need to deal with it. So this whole thing about, you know, manning up, being tougher than your circumstances. Dude, there's a time when that's bullshit. Know when to ask for help. Don't self-eliminate. Right. Goes back to the same concept. Out fucking standing. I uh, I really appreciate those words, and uh, I'm sure that someone listening will too. A lot of people will, and uh, I hope so. Yeah, yeah, I do too. And and uh, I I really appreciate that you did this interview with me today, and uh, I wanted to say thank you and thank you for your service, your your exemplary service to our country, and uh, uh, you know, in the future, um, if the time comes, I might ask you to do another one. We can talk about some other shit, maybe not so military. <laughs> Maybe not tell Army Hoa, but... Uh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I hope you enjoyed doing the interview. I did. Thank you. Yeah. I'll fucking Touching on some things I haven't discussed in a little while, so that's been good. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope it was a positive experience for you, too. Oh, I... One plug, yeah, if sh- I may. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, please. So we talked about uh, the, the combat side and the potential for killing somebody and then dealing with the aftermath. Okay. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, retired Army armor officer and psychologist, wrote some excellent books that I use to help me deal with some of the stress. Okay. So literally, the name of the book, On Combat, How Do You Deal With the Possibility of Taking a Life, and On Killing, How Do You Deal with the Aftermath. He has been a very outspoken supporter of military and police law enforcement around the United States because of what he felt was a lack of proper training to manage that. And I have copies of both books. So, huge fan of his work. Um, Firm believer that anybody that's potentially going to go through it or has been through it, I don't care which side of the coin you're on, read the books. On Combat. On Combat and On Killing. By? Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. David Grossman. David Grossman. Okay. Excellent books. Outstanding. Outstanding. I'll uh, I'll probably look into those myself just to... I can loan you a copy. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to... That sounds like figure out which gorilla box I put it in. Yeah, sure. Sure. (laughs) Still unpacking some of that stuff. Yeah. I bet you still still find sand and dust from places you've been. 
I've got the three color desert. I've got the original BDU. I've got the freaking ACU. They were just coming out with a multi cam when yeah. I got out. Yeah. Yeah. I got uniforms out the yin. <laughs> but yeah. That's fucking great. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been uh, uh, the first veteran interview on Pour Me Another with uh, retired Army Sergeant Major Mark Thornton. And, uh, also, thanks for bringing that scotch. What was the name of it again? Dalmore. D-A-L-M-O-R-E. Dalmore. That was delicious. Highland. Very, very good yeah. island. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. I killed it. And uh, I was kind of like, where's that bottle? We should have brought it in here and poured yeah, another. I'm glad we didn't. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it would have been a whole different interview. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, we're going to sign off uh, for the time being, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, if you enjoyed the show, be sure and give us a review and a rating on iTunes or Spotify. And like and follow us on uh, uh, social media. I'm on Facebook right now. It's uh, Pour Me Another's the name of the page. But uh, thanks again. Retired Army Sergeant Major Mark Thornton. And, uh, it was a pleasure. Yeah, it was for me as well. And uh, thank you guys for listening. And uh, I'll be putting together something for the next episode. I think it's the first of the month, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do that little. Uh, I, got, I, I do this thing on the first of the month where I do like an asshole of the month. And, and douchebags of history. And uh, <laughs> I remember you explaining that. Yeah, yeah. I talk I, I do a, I do an airplane. I talk about an airplane um because my aviation background. But anyway, I'll I'll put one of those together and I'll let you guys know when it's coming out. But until then, thanks for listening and have a fantastic week. <laughs>